theme of preaching is the glad, joyful submission of God's people to God. And if that's going to happen, two things stand potentially in the way of that. One is the righteousness of God, His unswerving commitment to exalt His own name. He won't bend on that. And the second thing is the pride of man, our unswerving commitment to exalt our name. And so, let's not fight with God today. Let's, let's yield. Let's yield our hearts to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, would you help us do that? It is so important that as we sit before your word now that we are humble, contrite in spirit. We don't want to fight with you. We want to confess that we are broken, messed up, needy people. We are in no position to exalt ourselves this morning. So God, would you humble us now and as we consider your word, would you come with power and change us forever? Not for this day merely or this week or month, but change us forever. May you come with a unique power and a unique authority that has that type of effect on us. We're shaken and changed. We lean on you for this. I beg you for your help to me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In his book, Of God and Men, A.W. Tozer writes the following. He says, Were some watcher or holy one from the bright world above to come among us, for a time, with the power to diagnose the spiritual ills of the church, there is one entry which I am quite sure would appear on the vast majority of his reports. Here it is. Definite evidence of chronic spiritual lethargy. Level of moral enthusiasm extremely low. Well, whether we like to admit it or not, I think that we're forced to agree with Tozer if we are, have an accurate assessment of ourselves, especially as the American church. Spiritual lethargy has become, sadly, the pattern for the Western church. In part, I think that's because that's what ease and comfort tend to produce. And when the church, on the other hand, is under duress... It prays. When the church is mistreated, when it's hounded, when it's harassed, when it's oppressed, it prays. It seeks God's face. But when the church is unpersecuted, untested, unhindered, it begins to relax. It begins to coast. And eventually, it'll actually begin to play. What has happened to the church in America? Some of you are old enough to think through decades of the church in America. And I want to ask us this question this morning. What has happened to the church in America? Why do you think churches here are so apathetic on the whole? Sammy Tippett, who is a friend of John MacArthur, offers these sobering words. He says, The church in the West 
is a sleeping giant. The church in the east sends a strong message to the church in the west. Repent. Wow. When I read those words this week, I don't know about you, but that landed hard on me. It resonated with me, and having just returned from India, it is impossible for me not to be moved when I consider the truthfulness of such words. I agree with him, totally agree with him. I, I, if you could see the demonic oppression, the persecution, the pain, the suffering, the utter duress and danger that our brothers and sisters in the East face on a regular basis, on a daily and weekly basis, then you would know what I mean. And you would understand what Sammy Tippett says when he says the church in the East calls the church in, in the West to repent. There is a direct connection between the suffering, danger, pain, and sorrow that they face and their desperation and pursuit of God. See, we think, in, we think America is safe because we're not persecuted. We think America is safe because we have freedom of religion. But friends, if I'm going to be honest with you, then I have to tell you that my, in my modest and humble opinion and evaluation after having traveled to India for the last seven years, is this. It is more dangerous to raise your children and family in the United States than it is in most third world countries. You may lose your life in India, but chances are you'll save your soul. But in this country, your body will probably never be attacked but daily your soul will be seduced and potentially lulled to sleep. The fact is, if you want to be holy, if you want to live for God, this is a dangerous place. Now that's not a popular message in America. And you know what? It never will be short of a revival. In fact, it angers American evangelicals to talk this way because it throws us off balance. It, it tends to irritate us. It gets under our skin. Why? Because deep down inside, we know that we are not living as we should. We know that. We would like to defend ourselves. We would like to pour up, pull out our portfolio. And we would like to show everyone and talk about how many missionaries we've sent over to third world countries across the world. We would like to show our portfolio about how many great preachers we have and how many fantastic conferences are available in America and how many genuine churches there are and how many sincere Christians we know. And you know what? All of that may be true. But when it comes to holiness of life and radical Christian service, we have a lot to learn. In many respects... I think it would be safe to say that we do not have, in many respects, the same caliber of Christianity here than we do in some places of the world. Sure, there are churches, ministries, and individuals in America living deeply sincere and godly lives. I do not deny that, and I thank God for that. But on the whole, the American church is hardly in a place to defend itself. Look around the landscape of American churches. 
You make an evaluation. Look at what's popular. Look at what's trendy. Tell me what's fashionable. I'll tell you what's not fashionable. Holiness. That's not even on the radar. Now, am I overstating the case? Is this just a slanted, perhaps, and overly pessimistic report? I don't think so. Look around and tell me what's happening. How serious, how blood earnest is the average American church? See, those words, the juxtaposition of those words, blood earnest and American church, they don't even seem natural together. Seems weird. Because it's, it's a joke. We have been lulled to sleep by the devil. But we better wake up because this is where we live. And if we are not vigilant, if we are not alert, then we too will be swept away in our own spiritual lethargy. Now, people of God, hear me. When I talk about the worldliness of the American church, I am not concerned about churches that are attempting to pursue biblical accommodation or wanting to be accessible to outsiders. That's a good desire. We need that. I want us to be sensitive to those things. But listen, when it is all said and done, I have one driving passion, and it's this, that our church be a holy church. That's what I'm most concerned about. Before anything else, this is our call. We are to be a holy people, set apart and consecrated to God. And if we are not careful, we will begin to subtly replace a deep biblical spirituality with worldliness and lethargy. And today, Peter is going to call us to re-examine our priorities in light of this issue. So we're going to spend our time together in verses 11 and 12. And the reason why these verses are worth a whole sermon is plain. It ought to be jumping out to you. It's clear. And here it is. There is nothing more foundational than this. Our highest calling, our greatest responsibility as a church before God is to be a holy people. And that's hard to do because Peter says in verse 11 that fleshly lust, get this imagery, is waging war against our souls. War. Which means if we are not vigilant, if we are not engaged in the battle, if we are not concerned about holiness, then we will lose the battle. And to lose the battle of holiness is to lose your soul. There's no reset button. There's no try, try again. There's no do-over. There's no second chance. So this is of paramount importance. Peter's point in these two verses is that we are to live in such a way. This is powerful. We are to live in such a way that people who are deeply resistant to the gospel will come to glorify God. That's the thesis of my message this morning. People who are deeply resistant to the good news of Jesus Christ will come to glorify God on the basis of how we live. And when your soul is filled with a sense of wonder at what God has done for you, you will share the sense of mission in your life. 
to live in such a way that people who are highly resistant to the gospel, to the claims of Christ, will come to glorify God. And I'm going to argue later that coming to glorify God is conversion. And I'm going to argue that on the basis of chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, where we have a woman, a wife, whose conduct leads her husband to salvation. That's the whole, that's the whole trajectory here. So, what's he saying? Here's the paraphrase. If you want to influence people, if you want to see lives change, then you must be holy. And as a church, if we want to influence people, if we want to see lives transformed, then we have to be a holy church. That is a non-negotiable. So the big question is this. What is that going to look like in practice? How can we live in such a way that our lives will impact, have an impact on people who are deeply resistant to the gospel. Now what happens is, in Peter here, is that Peter's going to answer that in three ways. And all of it comes down to this issue of submission to authority. In short, here's what he says. We are to practice submission in three realms. Alright? Submission to God. Submission in society, which includes both work and government. And then finally, submission in the home. Submission to God, submission in society, and submission in the home. And that's where we're going for the next three weeks together in this series. But today, we start with the most foundational of these, and it's submission to God. And I have one simple idea that I want to put forth on the table this morning. If you're taking notes, you want to write this down. One simple idea that's going to tie this passage together, and it's this. One point. The life and holiness of a person or church is its most powerful tool for ministry. Let me say that again. The life and holiness of a person or church is its most powerful tool for ministry. That's Peter's point. Verse 12, he says, Live such good lives among the pagans That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Now, there's something extraordinary about that statement. Because he's talking about God-haters, pagans, glorifying God. That's not supposed to happen. Wicked people hate God, but Peter is saying here that God has called us to live in such a way that a transformation occurs so that people who are deeply resistant to the gospel will actually come to glorify God, which I'm going to argue is conversion. And this will happen through, through, through the instrumentality of the good lives, good meaning holy lives of believers. So let's be absolutely clear here on what the objective is. When Peter talks about our good conduct, he's talking about a life of holiness. In verse 11, he says that we are to abstain from passions of the flesh. So the issue here is holiness. Everything that follows is geared toward this one idea that we are to be a holy people. We are to be a a people of God that are separated and set apart. We're talking this morning about the power of holiness. If you want to influence people, if you want to see your friends and family transformed, then you must be a holy man and a holy woman of God. True influence flows 
from a life of holiness. Everything that follows is geared to that idea. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 8, he says this, We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. True influence is when a person takes their heart and their life and they give it to another person. It's eyeball to eyeball. It's one soul of a man to another soul. It's transferring a life. It's not enough to give them your wisdom and your time. You must give people your heart. They must see your life. Teaching and preaching even is not enough. People must see our lives. You can be a gifted man. You can be a gifted woman. But if you don't have a holy life, your influence will be weak. The guy comes along. He says, I've been praying for my kids for years that they would be saved. Been praying and praying and praying and they're not saved. Say, well, look at your life, brother. Is there anything compelling about your life? Do your kids look at you and say, that's a man of God. Something special about that man. Is there anything compelling about your life? Is anybody affected by your life? Just words, 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 words. But where's the power of the life? Now, I'm not saying that parents with kids who don't know Jesus don't, aren't godly. There, we have many examples in our church of godly families who have kids that don't love Jesus But I'm saying it may be the case. It may be the case. True influence is when a person takes their heart and life and gives it to another person. You can be a gifted man or woman, but if you don't have a holy life, your influence will be weak. You can be knowledgeable. You can have lots of wisdom and experience. But if you are not holy, your influence will be weak. Gift, knowledge, zeal, education are not enough. You can have all those things. But if you don't have a holy life, you will not have influence. Outside of the gospel itself, your life, your character, your testimony is the most powerful tool you have for influencing your marriage, parenting, family, church, and neighbors. You can be a highly educated person. You can have a PhD. You can have all this knowledge. But if you don't have a holy life, you will not have a lasting influence on anybody. Moms. Dads, pastors, students, your life is to be an example to others. What you do and what you say is to be the same thing. If you're a dad, then your family's greatest need is your holiness. If you're a wife, your marriage's greatest need is your holiness. If you're a parent, then your children's greatest need is your, is your holiness. Look at Peter's language and and notice the seriousness of this matter. Verse 11. He says, I urge you as strangers and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that wage war against your soul. This is serious business. This is dead serious. This is not a joke. There are no games to be played here. And I just need to say this, if you're here today as a non-Christian, then this is your opportunity to come to this holy God and to submit yourself. 
Oh, how I pray that even as I preach this morning, that you would hear the sweet message of the gospel, that God is infinitely holy, and that you have no right to stand in his presence. He will consume you. Indeed, he will someday consume you if you do not repent. But if you will humble yourself, if you will bow your knee to Jesus Christ, if you will throw up your arms, if you will see that you are an enemy of God, that you are separated from God, that you are under the wrath of God, if you will bow your knee to Jesus through the blood of Jesus, you can have forgiveness of your sins today. And I pray that you would come to Christ. This is a strong plea for our church to be holy, but, but well, let's not put the cart before the horse. If you're not a Christian You can't be holy until you first bow your knee to Jesus. And I pray that you would do that this morning. Come. We would love for you to join us. We would love for you to be a part of this family. We're on a a trajectory together. We're going somewhere. We're a family. We love each other. We're a team. And we want you to bow your knee to Jesus and come with us. Jesus is great. But people of God... I wrote this down this week. We need to remember our identity. We need to remember our identity as Christians. We are aliens and strangers in this world. Peter speaks this way, I think, because he understands the basic principle that how you view yourself will determine how you live. That's not pop psychology. That's true. How you view yourself will determine how you live. And Peter is saying this, that we need to think clearly about ourselves. Why? So that we can live rightly. And friends, we need to learn how to think about ourselves. Peter tells us that we are aliens and strangers in this world. And that's about the fifth time that he said that to us in this letter so far. Do you live like a stranger? I'm serious. Is there anything about you that's different? Does the world look at you and say, hey, that guy's just the same as us? That's a serious problem. You are to live as a stranger. You ought to look like an alien. You ought to act like an alien in some ways. Because you've been called out. You've been separated. You've been consecrated to God. Right thinking about ourselves lives to right, leads to right living. We are aliens and strangers. And, and we will never make an impact on this world until we begin to recognize this fact that we don't belong here. This is not our home. We are passing through. And if we understand that, then we will begin to abstain from fleshly desires. Because you see, people that think this is their home, what do they do? They begin to settle in. They begin to get comfortable. And when you begin to settle in, you begin to start pursuing your fleshly desires. There's a direct connection between the holiness of a man and his understanding of who he is. Do you understand that you're an alien and a stranger? It's no wonder that worldliness is such a problem in the church. We've lost sight of the fact that this is not our home. This is no place to settle in. We cannot preach that message enough. This is not our home. This is no place to settle in. This is a place to engage on mission and that's it. That's it. That's all you're here for. You're here for the glory of God and to engage this world on mission, not to settle in here and call it your home. It's not your home. 
It's not a playground. It's a battlefield. And if we don't understand that, then we'll begin to relax our senses. And over time, we will become desensitized to the dangers around us. And eventually, we'll start playing games. And so that's where Peter starts. He says, we need to remember who we are. I love the example of Daniel in the Old Testament. He is, he's a primary example of this principle, an illustration, because Daniel refused to be marked out as a citizen of Babylon. He refused royal treatment. He refused the, the king's food and drink. And yet, this is the same Daniel that gained favor in the eyes of both noblemen and princes. And eventually, some of them came to glorify and praise Daniel's God. Perfect example of this text. And that's why Peter is speaking here in verse 12 and saying, Live in such a way that people will see your good works, your holiness, and glorify God. Be saved. Friends, outside of the gospel, your life is your most powerful evangelistic tool. Outside of the gospel, your most important message is your life. And when your life is lived in a radically God-centered way, it will have a lasting impact on others. But let's be clear about one thing this morning. Your life, our life as a church, your life as an individual will not impact anyone Unless it is a life of holiness. That's the point of verse 11. He says, I urge you, I urge you to abstain from fleshly desires. Do you feel the weight of those words? Those words ought to rattle us. Let let that land on you. There is a war being waged against your soul and that war is coming from within you. Holiness is the issue, and God wants you to live a holy and separated life. What's true holiness? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're talking about living a holy life unto God. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and this being a powerful tool in our Hands for the conversion of sinners. Second Corinthians chapter 7. What is true holiness? Let's read together verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, dear friends, since we have such promises, let us, listen, cleanse ourselves from every defilement in both body and soul, bringing our holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now notice that language here. We are to bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. And how are we to do that? He says, by cleansing ourselves from every defilement in both body and soul. That means true holiness in body and soul is both inward and outward. If you're going to be truly holy, you have to be a man and a woman that's not just clean on the outside, but is inwardly pure. When no one is looking, when you're all alone and only God can see you, you are clean on the inside. There's integrity in your private life. That's what he's talking about. Inward and outward purity. And we are to work for this. And notice this. We are to cleanse ourselves. We have work to do. (laughs) You know, sometimes I fear that in our gospel-centered movement, which is crucial, crucial, That we have this mistaken idea that somehow, if we just sit and stare at the cross, 
passively that we're going to somehow be transformed and changed into holiness. That's not what God's word teaches. Yes, we are to be grounded in the gospel. Yes, we are to go to the cross daily. But if we're going to be changed, we have work to do. We have work to do. We cannot just sit back. We are to be putting to death the deeds of the flesh. It's war. Hebrews 12.4 says, In your struggle, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That doesn't sound passive to me. There's nothing passive about that. Listen carefully. When a man is regenerated, he's passive. But when a man is sanctified, he is active. This is, this is so important that we understand this. If a man is going to be holy, it will come through effort. Now that effort is grounded in the gospel. That effort flows from faith. And that effort is empowered by the Holy Spirit. But it will be effort nonetheless. What is God looking for? To borrow from Kevin DeYoung's language, I think it's this. God is looking for gospel-driven, faith-fueled, spirit-empowered effort. 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 If a man is going to be holy, it will come as he disciplines himself morning by morning to get alone with God and commune with him. And if you want to be holy, it's going to start on your knees. When you shut your door and you get alone with God, it'll start when you desire to know God. And when that desire becomes greater than your desire for anything else in this life. Do you want to know God? If I want to know my wife, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to kick everyone out of my house. I'm going to close my door. I'm going to sit down on the couch and I'm going to look her in the eyes and I'm going to talk to her. I'm going to get alone with her. I'm going to spend time with her. I'm going to make her a priority. I'm going to take her out. I'm going to make her a priority in my schedule. I'm going to close the door. I'm going to turn off the phone. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to talk with her face to face. You say, well, I pray Pastor Jonathan all the time when I'm driving. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about if you want to know God, then you need to shut your door and get on your face before him. And you need to be willing to rearrange your entire schedule if necessary to accommodate that priority. If you want to know God, then you'll get up early and you'll go to bed late and you'll make sacrifices. When no one else is awake, you will be a man of God on your face before God. When you're all alone and no one is looking, you will be pleading with God to make you a holy man. Is that your passion? Is that your desire? Is that your practice? It's been said of George Mueller that, what a man. He read his Bible on his knees over a hundred times in his life. On his knees. Why? Not because he wanted to learn information. Not because he wanted to write a systematic theology. Not because he wanted to be respected for his Bible knowledge. Or be respected as a man? No, he did it for one reason. George Mueller wanted to know his God. Do you want to know your God? Do you want to know him? Every part of your inward man is to be growing in holiness. When the Bible talks about the inward life of a man, 
It's talking about four things. It's talking about the heart and the mind and the will and the conscience. And God is calling you to purity in these four areas. And that means if you want to be holy, if you want to seek God, if you want to know God, if you want to have a powerful life that helps to transform other people, you have to be concerned about these four things. Purity of heart, discipline of mind, sensitivity of conscience, and a broken will. You are dead to yourself. You are no longer living for you, but for God. Friends, these are all evidences that you are on a trajectory, on a pursuit of holiness. Let me ask you a question. When is the last time that you were broken and deeply convicted over your sin? When is the last time that you were actually discernibly broken? Over your sin. Almost uncontrollably broken. If you want to see God. If you want to know God. If you want to be used of God. Holiness is not an option. It is absolutely necessary. Turn to Second Timothy chapter 2. Let's look at this a little further. Second <clears throat> Timothy chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 20. <clears throat> Paul says this. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, same language, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Alright, so now Paul is giving us an illustration. He's saying in a large house there are many vessels, cups, bowls, whatever you want to think of. And some are for common use and some are for special use. And there's a master in the house. And the master uses honorable vessels. What's Paul teaching? Paul is teaching that the church is the house of God. Christ is the master of the house. The members are the vessels. And if you want to be used, then you must cleanse yourself. If you came to my house and I served you some tea and I hand it to you and you're about to drink that tea and when you look in the bottom of the cup you see a worm in the bottom, you're not going to drink that. You're going to set it down because that's a dishonorable vessel. And the point is clear. When a master goes to the cupboard to get a vessel, he takes a clean vessel. The church is the house of God. Jesus is the master. You are the vessels. And if you want to be used, you must cleanse yourself, not outwardly merely, but inwardly pure. <clears throat> what did Jesus say to the Pharisees? He said, you are like whitewashed tombs on the outside, but on the inside, you're like dead men's bones. A man comes to church says, how are you doing? He says, great, yeah, great, life's great. Exchanged a few pleasantries. Another guy says, how are you doing? Oh, yeah, my week's been great. Yeah, I've been doing this. Smile, big smile, happy, great. 
Life's great. I'm doing really good. I love Jesus. Singing, raise my hands in worship. That man goes home and he beats his wife. Man comes to church. He's happy. He smiles. Yeah, you know, doing great. Yeah, so happy. Great. Love Jesus. Goes home and he pins his wife up against the counter and he sticks his finger in her chest and he yells at her and he uses derogatory language to her. Fake. No purity. Outside he looks great. Outside he looks pure. Inside he's rotten. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs. And friends, people of God, God is calling us to be inwardly pure. When no one is looking, when you're all alone, you are a holy man, a holy woman of God. You are separated. You're on your face before God. Oh, may God help us to be inwardly pure. God will not use an unholy man. If you want to be useful by the master, you must be clean on the inside. Inward purity, friends, is the issue. If you want to be fruitful, if you want the power of God, if you want the master to use you, if you want to be filled with the spirit, then your life cannot be polluted. Why would God fill your unholy vessel with the Holy Spirit? You're polluted on the inside. No power. No power in your parenting. No power in your marriage. Problems. You're polluted. You're sick on the inside. No power, no authority, no influence in your life. God will not use an unholy man. God will pour his spirit into a holy vessel, not an unholy one. And if you do not have God's spirit, if we as a church do not have God's spirit because we are worldly, because we are not set apart, because, because we are pursuing the wrong things, if we do not have God's spirit and fresh anointing and, and filling and blessing of his spirit and his power at work within us, then we are useless. And that's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 7, his language is amazing there. 1 Timothy 4, 7, you should memorize this. If you are serious about holiness, you will memorize this text. You will pursue this text. You will think about it. 1 Timothy 4, 7, Paul says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That word that he uses there is, is outstanding. The word is gumnazo. And that word is eventually where we ended up getting the word gym. But the word gumnazo means to literally strip yourself naked. Why? Because in order to win the race, you will remove every, hinder, every encumbrance. In order to be in top shape, tip-top shape, in order to be effective, in order to be, to be most efficient, you will remove all hindrances and all encumbrances. And Paul says, strip yourself naked. Train yourself for the purpose of godliness. Friends, this is what God has called us to. How do, how do you influence people? How do we influence people? How do we get to their heart? How do we reach the conscience of men? Here it is, true love and, a, and an example of holiness. True love and an example of holiness. And when this happens, when the church pursues holiness in this way, people that are deeply resistant to the gospel will see that and glorify God. I think this is 
Peter's shorthand way, as I said earlier, of saying people will be saved. And here's the point. Without a life of holiness, we have no power. If we're not a holy church, if you're not a holy father, husband, wife, mother, or young person, you will have no lasting influence. Examine your life. What would your wife say about you? If we got her alone and we went into the other room back there and I said, tell me about your husband. What would she say about you? What would your husband say about you? If we got him alone and said, tell me about your wife. What would they say about you? What would your children say about you? What would your friends say about you? Is there anything about your life that is compelling? Have you ever been around a holy man or woman of God? Have you? I mean, a a man or a woman of God that you just know when you're around them, they are holy. Have you ever been around such a person? I have. And I'll tell you what it's like. Tell you what it feels like. There is a deep sense around that person that they have been with God. That's the sense you get. More than anything else, it's the sense that this man, this woman, has been with God. And friends, we need more people like that. Oh, that our church should be full of people like that. We should be able to come here on Sunday morning and, and, and walk up to any number of people and since the moment we get into their presence, this guy has been with God. This is holy ground. We're so flippant. We're so casual. We're so cavalier. It, it's amazing though how a life of holiness though immediately commands your attention and you immediately are rebuked in your spirit <clears throat> and you immediately begin to think... <clears throat> I need to be a man like that. We need more of that in our church. In Acts chapter 4, Peter is preaching and it says he's filled with the Spirit. And then in verse 13, here's what it says. Acts 4. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men. Listen, uneducated and common. They were astonished and they recognized what? That they had been with Jesus. That's recognizable. I don't know if you know this about yourself or not, but people can recognize if you're a spiritual man, if they have any discernment whatsoever. People know if you've been with Jesus. It's obvious. That's what I'm talking about. When your neighbor's around, he feels it. When you're in the office, your coworkers sense it. When you're with your brothers and sisters at church, they know it. When people get around you, do they know that you've been on your face before God? What kind of a vibe does your life give off? Cavalier? Trite? Shallow? Silly? Or is there a weight about you? A spiritual sensitivity, a worshipful demeanor, a real sense of gravity and holiness... You can have that, you know. But friend, it will come at a price. And it starts on your knees. We've got to live on our knees before God.
We've got to give him the best hours of our day. And you know what? As I said earlier, maybe you've wondered for a long time, why are people around me never changed? Why are the people that are closest to me I've been praying for? Why are their lives never transformed? Why is nothing happening? It's like I just, I just go on and I go on and I pray and, 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 and there's just no power. There's no power in my parenting. There's no power in my marriage. There's no power in my ministry. There's no power in my discipleship and mentoring. There's no power in my evangelism. There's no power in my preaching and teaching. There's no power in my marriage. Here's why. You've not been with God. That's the issue. We have not been with God. There's no power, no influence, no authority, no intensity unless we are on our knees before God. Whether you're a young child or whether you're an old Christian in here, there's no power in your life, no authority, no influence unless we are on our knees before God. One passion, one desire in this life is that we know God. Is that your passion? One passion. That's all we have to do. We have one book to study. The lawyer, he knows his law books. The doctor knows his medical books. The Christian has one book to know. One book. This is it. Spend time. Open this book. Get on your face before God. Plead with him to make you a holy man and a holy woman. This is what we need. It starts... On our knees. May we live on our knees before God. No power. No authority. You don't have to have a loud voice. You don't have to. You don't have to speak with with great unction. You don't have to boom with your voice. But if you're a holy man. There will be an intensity. Of your life. When you talk with people. There will be an intensity. A genuine intensity. Then people will know. That man, that woman has been with God. I want that. I want that for you. I want that for our pastoral staff. I want that. So we come full circle. Why is the church in America so weak? Here's why. It's filled with worldly people who love everything more than they love God. It's filled with people who put children and money and jobs and career and sports above God. It's filled with pastors who love themselves and the praise of men more than they love God. It's filled with preachers who preach silly little trite sermons because they either don't know God at all or they haven't spent time with God in years. Pastors haven't spent time with God in years. America's great need are, is holy men who walk with God, who know him, who love him, and who lead their families and churches to do the same. That's our great need. Fathers, listen to me. Your greatest calling, your highest responsibility in life is not to make money and provide for your family. I don't care if you're a poor man. Your greatest calling And your highest responsibility is to be a holy man. Separated unto God. Who knows God. Who loves God. Who worships God. And our church's greatest need is that we we are holy men. 
This is it. This is, this is our passion. This is our desire. Your family's greatest need, parents, is that you, husband and wife, mom and dad, are holy parents. That's what your kids need to see. That's going to change them. Nothing is more important. One thing have I desired of the Lord. One thing. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek Him in His temple. That's how we influence people. That's the real power of our Christian witness beyond the gospel. The greatest gift you can give another person is your own transformed and God-soaked presence. And we must do that because we want God. That's the aim. Not to be useful. Are you willing to pray this? Are you willing to pray, God, if you never do another thing in my life, if you never anoint another sermon, if you never help me in another conversation, if you never bless another effort I do, make me a holy man before you and put your kiss and your stamp of love upon me when I'm on my face before you in the quiet place. Are you willing to pray that? Do you want God for God's sake? It's your choice. May God help us. Let's pray. Oh God, we are broken and pitiful people. Our affections are so off the map. Our love, our joys, our delights are misappropriated. God, would you correct us? Would you change us? We need to hunger for you beyond everything else in this life, God. Would you make us as a church, before we think about anything, any ministry, any program, any, any, any change, may we be one thing as a church, a holy church. And may our dads and moms and families be, before they are anything else, holy men of God. God, one thing, one thing do we desire. Would you give us that passion and that resolve until our dying day? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.